So some time ago, I found myself agreeing not with a conservative pastor or a well-respected theologian, but with John McEnroe. Yes, John McEnroe, the tennis player, not exactly a role model for tennis court etiquette. If my son ever plays tennis, I will not be showing video clips of his antics. I mean, he was a great player, but that's overshadowed by his temperamental outbursts of anger. He confronts and yells at umpires and referees with this trademark phrase, you cannot be serious. Now, after retirement, McEnroe has become a television commentator. But even then, he could not stay out of controversy. The latest one that drew me in was his remarks about Serena Williams, likely the greatest woman tennis player ever. McEnroe went on air and spoke frankly that Williams could not compete with the best male players in the world. And despite a tide of angry responses, he refused to apologize and back down on his stance. Men's and women's tournaments are apples and oranges, he'd say. He was merely expressing his view that men and women are different in their physical makeup. And that difference is more pronounced among professional athletes. Why talk about this? Um, let, let's say that at a water cooler conversation or a, after a friendly game at the park, you're, you're put on the spot to express your views on sex and gender. What will you say? You slowly back away, fade into the bushes like Homer Simpson. Do you say all that you're thinking? Figuratively drop the microphone and tell them, you cannot be serious. Whatever strategy you choose, it's best that you turn to the Bible. And one of the ways that we as church help people understand this book is through summaries like our statement of faith. Last week, we looked at its first line. We got acquainted with the unity of scriptures, its inspiration and inerrancy, its supremacy over tradition, reason, and experience. That gave us the basic foundation from the past to interpret God's word and apply it to the issues of today. And as we think about family and gender and sex, you may notice something amiss here at Faith Bible Church. Specifically, we don't have a concise expression of our views on marriage, sex, and gender. And by adding a line in our statement of faith, we would better equip the saints for ministry, edification, unity, and maturity. That's why I'm suggesting one to you today, and you'll see it in the bulletin insert. So I'll read it. We believe that God created humanity, male and female, equal in dignity, yet different in function, exclusively set apart the marriage as a covenant between one male and one female for companionship, sexual intimacy, procreation, and reflection of Christ's love for the church, and any deviation from the Creator's biblical design is simple, including but not limited to adultery, homosexuality, and transgenderism. And you see some proof passages included as well. And let me make a 
Two quick initial observations about this line. First, concerning its length. Currently, the longest line of the statement is 63 words, excluding the proof passages. This one currently stands at 62. And it seems the original designers of this document did not want any of the lines to get too wordy. There's probably some wisdom there. As much as we want to discuss every single proof passage in here and include every single sexual sin out there, the statement would lose its catechizing value if it's too long. What we have currently is a reasonable length for teaching and memorization. Secondly, let me talk about revisions. Rest assured, what you see in front of you is not the final product. Think of it as a rough draft. And we're open to suggestions and wording. If you're a member, you're free to email me or the council. Maybe you're a wordsmith. Maybe you're really good with words. Only after the council hears some input will we finalize the wording and present it for a congregational vote. So non-grammatical and non-formatting changes to the statement of faith must be approved by the congregation, a quorum of 50% of membership, and 85% vote of approval. We haven't decided on the exact date of this vote, but I hope to see it done before the end of 2022. So if you're a member here at Faith Bible, you're about to partake in history. I need you to keep your mind engaged and follow along because, yes, your vote counts. So like last week, I'll go over the line phrase by phrase. I made use of the semicolon to divide it up into three elements. And here are the summaries of them. First, we celebrate God's creative order for gender. Secondly, we honor God's covenantal purposes of marriage. Thirdly, we oppose man's corrupting ideas about sex. I'll use proof passages throughout the talk, though I won't go into like too much details there, but they'll support our arguments here. So first, we celebrate God's creative order for gender, and that comes from the, from the first part of the proposed line. We believe that God created humanity, male and female, equal in dignity, yet different in function. We have many opportunities to celebrate God's creation On Thursday, the autumn season commenced. I can tell you that fall's my wife's favorite season. She likes everything about it, the cooler weather after the summer heat, pumpkins and other seasonal food, lots and lots of pumpkins I notice around the house, the changing of the tree leaves. So even with thorns and thistles, even as the whole creation groans, the creator's invisible Attributes are clearly seen. We're without excuse in our duty to glorify him. We'll talk more later about how we failed in that. For now, let's focus on his creative order. Through creation, we perceive our triune God's eternal power, wisdom, and understanding in making everything out of nothing. He spoke it all into existence. 
in one of the proof passages, we read what happened on the sixth day of creation. Within the span of 24 hours, Lord created all land creatures. Both my chocolate lab mix and I have ancestors created on the same day. But humanity has a special stamp of approval as the crown of creation. We read in Genesis 1, 26 to 28. And if you have your Bible with you, just go to the earlier pages of the Bible. Genesis 1, 26 to 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Since both male and female were created in the likeness of God, we share equal dignity. I don't have time to cover in detail the nature of God's image. It could relate to, one, the function of humanity and its purpose to rule, two, our substance as a rational creature, or three, some relational aspect. Whatever that image might be, it characterizes every individual, saved or unsaved, able or disabled, at work or in a coma, in the womb or out of the womb. Yet God made male and female different in function. When we turn to the second chapter of Genesis, we learn more details about that sixth day of the first week. At first, Adam was alone. He was the first gardener and the first zoologist, as we see in verses 15 to 19. So chapter 2, verse 15 to 19, here's what we find. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature... That was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. And then we see in the rest of Genesis chapter 2, that God becomes the first surgeon and the first matchmaker. Verse 21, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and the flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed." 
The only helper comparable to Adam was another human made in the Lord's image. Taken out of the man was the woman. The word helper should not be seen as demeaning. It's used to describe God in multiple places, Psalm 33, 70, 115. And we can be overly sensitive about titles, but we shouldn't. God, who needs no help, was secure in himself to be called upon as our help. The Lord of glory, without hesitation, took the form of a bondservant. And the phrase comparable to him again emphasizes the essence and nature shared between the male and the female. So God made woman equal in dignity to man, but different in her role. Together they fulfilled the mandate to populate and rule over earth. Paul reads uh, these Genesis passages as literal history. Adam is literal. And he originates from God, while Eve originates from Adam. We see that in Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 11. In God's creation, the female was dependent on the male, but in procreation, the male is dependent on female. God built into our society this hierarchy and interdependence. Male leadership in families and churches is according to God's design. The message of this world is that gender equality does not allow for patriarchy, the leadership of men. Radical feminists would say, when men take charge, women must suffer. But this is the devil's lie. Satan would love for us to believe that corrupt pastors, abusive husbands, and absentee fathers are all theirs to it with male authority. But that's not the original purpose of God. It's the consequence of the fall. So let's go on to the second point now. We honor God's covenantal purposes of marriage. So I'm going to read that second part of the line after the first semicolon. And God understood exclusively set apart the marriage as a covenant between one male and one female for companionship, sexual intimacy, procreation, and reflection of Christ's love for the church. So now we're building on Genesis 2. Marriage is God's good idea, worth repeating in human history. Moses can't help but insert himself in verse 24. This first union of man and woman is the rationale for all future marriages. To become one, and together they're to be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. When Jesus and Paul cite the words of Moses here, specifically one flesh language, they're by necessity speaking of sexual intimacy. Such relations are meant for one man and one woman in a marriage commitment as long as they live. God pictured it like a fountain blessed by God for private enjoyment not for sharing with others. One pastor talks about how just as fire must be contained in the fireplace, physical intimacy must be contained in marriage. When sexual activity takes place outside of marriage, whether it's premarital or extramarital, 
God calls it sexual immorality. It displeases God, disgraces your spouse, disregards your neighbor. It even dishonors your own body meant for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And it's up to all of us to protect the institution of marriage against all threats. Whether we're single or married, celibate or seeking a spouse, Hebrews 13.4 tells us, marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Marriage is honorable not because its participants are always honorable, but the spouses are meant to play roles that point to a greater heavenly reality. That's because the union of husband and wife symbolizes the union of Christ and the church. We're headed towards a celebration in heaven that's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. Marriage is a sacred sign because of what it signifies. So turn with me now to Ephesians 5, 22 to 33, and that's in the New Testament. You'll find it in page 815 of your Bible. Actually, you'll have to turn one more page to 816 to get to these verses. Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. And I'll read it in entirety. And if you live long enough, you've been to your fair share of weddings, and there you probably heard this passage read and preached. So let me read it again. It's a good reminder. Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church. And he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having, a, not having spot or wrinkle or any, other, any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So again, we cherish and protect the biblical concept of marriage because it's a symbol of the gospel message. But as it's evident, as sinners, we've taken God's good gifts and distorted them. And that leads us to the third point. We must oppose man's corrupting ideas about sex. And let's read that last part of the statement. And any deviation from the creator's biblical design is sinful, including but not limited to adultery, 
homosexuality, and transgenderism. So I saw firsthand the breakdown of a marriage. My father and mother never signed divorce papers, but their marriage was as good as dead. They spent most of their married lives apart from each other in separate countries. When they were together at last, there was hostility, drunken strife, suspicions of infidelity. Growing up in a broken family had a huge impact on my life. I feel as if I have an emotional limp and I think I'll have it until glory. Why do marriages fail? Well, the problem's not ultimately circumstances or background. The problem's right inside of us in the sinful, idolatrous heart. I've included in the proof text three passages that agree on this major point. We lost our way with gender, sex, and marriage because we lost our way to God. So We started with the first book in the Old Testament, and now we're at the last one of the Old Testament, Malachi. And, and let me just set the scene here. The settings at Jerusalem after the return from the Babylonian exile and the rebuilding of the temple. But the same old problems have resurfaced. So let's, look at, let's take a look at Malachi chapter 2, 10 to 16. If you're following along in your Bible, you'll find it in uh, page 674. The Pew Bible 674. Malachi, chapter 2, verse 10 to 16. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously with one another by profaning the covenant of the fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution, which he loves. He has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob, the man who does this, being awake and aware, yet who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and crying, so he does not regard the offering anymore, nor receive it with goodwill from your hands. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been witness between you and the wife of your youth, with whom you have dealt treacherously. Yet she is your companion, and your wife by covenant. But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. For the Lord God of Israel says that he hates divorce, for it covers one's garment with violence. Says the Lord of hosts, Therefore take heed to your spirit, that you do not deal treacherously. Whether it's ancient Israel or 21st century America, marital problems are spiritual problems. God rejected the men at the Lord's altar because they betrayed him and the woman of their wedding altar. God hates divorce. I shudder to even say the word. 
Ira and I promised each other that we'd never invoke that word in tough times. It should not be seen as some escape hatch. Just because the law made provision for it doesn't mean God's pleased with it. It only proves our sinfulness. Our Lord says himself in Matthew 19, 1 to 9, so that's the next passage we'll look at. So just go to the next book in your Bible after Malachi, and you have Matthew. And if you're using your pew Bible, we're at page 692. Matthew 19, 1 to 9. Now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished these things, that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. I love it when Jesus says, have you not read? He does not say that to illiterate ignoramus, but to religious leaders. Pharisees and Sadducees. And we should be attentive to how Christ reads the scriptures. He interprets the creation account literally as true history. He counts two genders by God's design. And I won't get into the exception clause in verse 9 today, except for sexual immorality. I just want to highlight that it's the hardness of the heart that leads us to abandon marriage. The fault's not with God or with the covenant itself. We look outside of marriage because we don't look to God and we don't look in his word. And it turns out that adultery is just one of the ways we deviate from the creator's biblical design. Now let's turn to Romans 1, 18 to 32. We're continuing in the New Testament. And if you're using your pew Bible, we're in page 785. And instead of reading the whole passage, I'm going to highlight select words and phrases, summarize chunks and connect them to our current situation. So allow me to work backwards And if you look at verses 29 to 30, you'll see many things that characterize what's going on today. There's unrighteousness, sexual immorality, proud boasters. Note also the phrase, inventors of evil. There's so many new terms these days, I can't keep up. 
I grew up scratching my head about polygamy, but now we have to deal with polyamory, polyfidelity. This is partly why I chose to say in the proposed statement, including but not limited to, we might wake up tomorrow with more terms, more ways to pervert God's design for marriage and sex and gender. There's a lot more where that came from. Let's continue to work backwards to Romans chapter 1, 26 to 27. And we see there that women and men have traded heterosexual relations for homosexual ones. And then going back to verse 24, we read how we're led astray in the lust of our hearts to dishonor our bodies among ourselves. Why is it that God three times gave us up to such uncleanness, vile passions, and a debased mind. What's the root cause of all this corruption? Look at verses 22 to 23. Professing to be wise, they became fools and and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. It's idolatry. Idolatry led us to sexual immorality of all kinds, We broke the first commandment, and that's why we break the seventh and many others. Idolatry has led humans to be lovers of themselves and pleasure rather than lovers of good and lovers of God. Instead of saying, God's will be done, we say, my will be done. And that means redefining my my life in my own terms, even if that means becoming transgender or whatever you want to be. Judgments coming for all who exalt themselves as gods. When Christian author Rosaria Butterfield was turning away from her lesbian lifestyle, one passage that convicted her was Ezekiel chapter 16, 48 to 50. There, God points to haughtiness, pride, as the reason for Sodom's downfall. We must confront that same pride when we speak to the LGBTQ plus community. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him. But the gospel speaks of a wonderful, life-giving humility. In that message, we have Jesus who humbled himself. Instead of saying, I do what I want with my body, God's Son said to the Father, Behold, I have come to do your will. Christ gave himself so that we might be sanctified through the offering of his body once for all. He died on the cross for our sins of pride, lust of the eyes, and sexual sins. He paid the penalty and bore the shame that was justly ours. That on the third day he rose again from the dead and ascended to heaven. And he'll return someday for judgment. On that day, God will halt the arrogance of the proud, and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. Ultimately, the sexual, immoral, and idolaters of self shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone. Please humble yourself before God, before it's too late. Turn from your sins and repentance and place your faith in Jesus. 
He'll forgive you of your, uh, of your sins, and you can be pure in his eyes through his cleansing blood. There's no good you can do to earn a place in heaven. You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I'm not sure whether anyone from the LGBTQ plus community will be listening to this sermon. Maybe a small church like ours isn't a threat, not worth their time. But if we are somehow attacked, it's okay. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Let's be faithful to God's word in this matter and make our last song our prayer of trust. Whatever my God ordains is right. His holy will abideth. I will be still whatever he does and follow where he guides. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for your holy will expressed in your word that you are a holy God. In a world where everything changes, even in an instant, we can turn to you. You are unchanging. And we thank you that we can rely on your word as a, that is clear to us what we must do. That sanctification is your will. We pray that even as we say these things to those who are lost around us, those who may be who may be loose in their sexual morals, those who may have made decisions to change their genders. Pray that we will not be hypocrites. Help us to follow you faithfully. And then help us to be bold and compassionate as we tell the truth to those around us. We thank you for your spirit that empowers us. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.